Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around our table each week, we talk about the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement. I am joined this week at the start of our episode by Travis Wusso and Chelsea Patterson Sobolik. The bulk of this episode is going to be an interview that Chelsea and I had with a coalition partner and friend of ours talking about a really important adoption bill before Congress. But I have invited Travis and Chelsea to come on here at the top of the show because over the weekend, President Trump nominated Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court vacancy left by the passing of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, Travis, Chelsea, thanks for making time here on this Monday after a weekend where we saw each other on Zoom, too, because we were working on Saturday <laughs> because there were some news made. So, uh, so thanks, for, thanks for not getting tired of me yet. Good to be with you, Jeff. Good to see you, Chelsea. Thanks for having us, Jeff. So we are uh, not tired of you, for the record. <laughs> oh well, thank you. Everybody is just yeah, smiling, smiling, big smiles now to be back here on this Zoom. So, like I said, over the weekend, uh, the president made a nomination to the Supreme Court. That is always big news. It's especially big news and interesting news right now, just because of the timing of all of this. But we've got a couple of different resources uh, up at ERLC.com right now that I will link to in the show notes. The first being our press release, uh, where Dr. Moore had just a wonderful comment on Judge Barrett and affirming and supporting her nomination by President Trump to the highest court in the land. I will tell you you guys, that my favorite part of Dr. Moore's quote and a lot of our resources on this is is highlighting that the Barrett family, she and her husband have a big family and a couple of her kids are adopted. And so Dr. Moore, being an adoptive dad himself, the opening line of his quote is, I have long respected Judge Barrett, not only as a highly accomplished jurist, but also as an adoptive parent in the adoption advocacy space, as well as the special needs advocacy space, because they have a special needs child as well. So just a really powerful family story for the nation to look to. Uh, and you can see some of some of that in his quote, as well as you can learn more about Judge Barrett in our explainer. Uh, as, as we often do here at the ERLC, it is an explainer telling you what you should know about Judge Amy Coney Barrett. So Travis, I want to come to you first. You are our Vice President of Public Policy, you're a lawyer, you're our general counsel. What do you make of all this? Well, it's it's obviously massively significant news, Jeff. The first thing I'll say is that the, the passing of Justice Ginsburg and uh, President Trump's nomination of Judge Barrett will represent a, a, a dramatic shift on the ideological balance of the court. And I think it's worth remembering that uh, President Trump's first two appointments, uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, both represented kind of a one-for-one one, uh, in the court's balance with, I mean, with a couple of important caveats. But Justice Gorsuch replaced the late uh, Antonin Scalia in, in his seat. And so the, you know, the ideological balance, you know, both uh, consider themselves uh, to be textualists. And so the ideological balance there did not shift much. Um, and, and with Justice Kennedy uh, being replaced by uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, 
without a doubt, there there was a rightward uh, a shift on that with that appointment. But you know, it's it's worth recognizing that that Justice Kennedy normally was a was a fairly reliable conservative vote, with the major exceptions uh, of his jurisprudence on abortion and LGBT issues. And so, you know, he he authored you know famously. Uh, you know, several opinions in, in, in both of those areas where, you know, we, we would not expect uh, Justice Kavanaugh to do the same thing. With this uh, new appointment, uh, you, you really do have uh, a significant shift uh, from the types of opinions that Justice Barrett will write and the, vo- the types of votes uh, that she will cast if she is ultimately uh, confirmed by the Senate and, and seated on the seated on the court. So so I think that's, you know, that's the first thing to note. I mean, her. Well, and can I can I say something on that before you talk yeah. more about Barrett specifically? I have spent quite a bit of time not only watching lectures of Judge Barrett and Q&As of Judge Barrett, but also looking back at lectures and, and Q&As and stuff that uh, Justice Ginsburg did, particularly conversations uh, between Ginsburg and Scalia. And that was part in research for an article that that uh, that I wrote on Scalia and Ginsburg's friendship. But it is it is really interesting to me how Barrett comes in, you know, as a a trailblazing woman in her own right uh, behind Ginsburg, who obviously is is the woman who opened those doors as a litigator before she was ever even uh, in the federal judiciary. But also how she comes after Antonin Scalia, who was, you know, he used to make a joke that people would ask him, when did you become an originalist? Like it was some scary, creepy thing because he was a trailblazer for that. And then here comes here comes Judge Barrett, who was a former Scalia clerk and is is in his, you know, there, there's a legacy thing happening here of the passing of Scalia and Ginsburg that is kind of, in some ways, uh, summed up in Judge Barrett's appointment. Uh, together, yeah, and you know, I'll mention one other, you know, one other sort of trailblazing uh, aspect of of Judge Barrett's nomination. She she will be uh, the only uh, justice sitting on the court that didn't go to Harvard or Yale. She's a graduate of really? Notre Dame Law School. Yeah, she's a graduate of Notre Dame Law School, and so that's I love you know, that. That's, that's another. You know, As it's a another state college guy. I love that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a proud state college grad myself. <laughs> Uh, no, you know, not not that Notre Dame is a state college, but um, <laughs> well, it's not it's not the Ivy bubble, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I and I think there, you know, and that and I think in the you know sort of the you know discussion around her confirmation, I think there is something, you know, there's something appealing to having somebody who's you know spent a lot of time in the Midwest, uh, is from the Gulf Coast, you know, has you know has a different kind of uh, set of experiences and sensibilities and so on. Um, you know, but but as you mentioned, Jeff, I mean, she she is an originalist in in uh, in her own uh, judicial philosophy. Uh, she has written extensively as a as a law professor on these issues, and you know, and then has served as a as a judge uh, on the circuit bench now since 2017. So you know, I think there there are a lot of reasons to be really happy with uh, really happy with this appointment or with this nomination, uh, I think she, I think she is exceptionally qualified, is brilliant. And, you know, if you watched the, you know, her speech in the Rose Garden, you know, has, you know, sort of a, a humility and, you know, grace about her demeanor that I think is, you know, is just, is like really refreshing in 2020. So. Right. 
No, you, you can definitely, she has a poise that you can see why her students uh, really loved her and admired her. Um, you know, when she was a constitutional law professor there at Notre Dame, and that's really where the bulk of her career has been invested. And, and you can tell why she was uh, an award-winning teacher. Chelsea, you were interviewed by the New York Times for a piece that, uh, that published today as we're recording. Uh, so it's a piece by Ruth Graham. And it's titled, For Conservative Christian Women, Amy Coney Barrett's Success is Personal. Tell us about that interview. Yeah, Jeff. So I, um, Ruth reached out and I got to chat with her about what I, as a Christian conservative woman, thought about Judge Barrett's nomination and just some reflections I shared with her and I would love to share with our listeners. Um, I'm incredibly encouraged and excited about Judge Barrett's nomination for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, I'm excited to see a female be nominated. There's not currently a conservative female judge on our highest court, so I think uh, that representation matters, and it's encouraging to see someone I deeply respect and a a role model for so many be nominated to that seat. A second thing on a very personal level, Jeff, you brought this up, that Judge Barrett and her husband adopted two children internationally. I'm an adoptee and my husband and I are pursuing international adoption. So it's encouraging to see someone who uh, has a tender heart in her place for vulnerable children and is is carrying that with her into her work. Um, and, and one more one more thing I, I watched, a, I've like you have watched many uh, interviews with her and something that stood out to me, she's a working mom of seven and she has spoken about her being a working mom and what that looks like and how she um, kind of navigates those challenges. And one of the things that really, really uh, stood out to me, and I think for so many other people, this is why we've been really excited, is that those two things aren't at odds for her. She's been able to obviously have a very flourishing and successful professional career and a very successful uh, family life as well. So I think those those things have been uh, really encouraging to me um, to see her nomination. And um, I watched an interview with her and she was talking about how she relies, you know, heavily on her clerks, on her, she needs good clerks to rely on so that she can go home and spend spend time with her, her children. So I, I think several, several things really stick out to me on a kind of a more personal level on why I'm excited to see her nominated and hopefully uh, confirmed to be a Supreme Court justice. Well, Chelsea, that's all that's all really good. We've been having a lot of similar conversations about uh, about how cool her nomination is for all those same reasons in my house. Uh, Travis, walk us through what comes next. So we've had the nomination on Saturday. Uh, what's going to happen next? Well, so so what's happening over the next couple of weeks is that uh, Senate Judiciary Committee staffers are receiving disclosures and forms and and all sorts of things that I'm sure that uh, Judge Barrett has been filling out over the weekend. They're going to be pouring over uh, her papers and all kinds of things. And all of that will be the preparation and lead into her public hearings, which start on October 12th. So her hearings are expected to run that that whole Week October twelfth will be the day that uh, the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee make their opening statements. So it'll be a day of politics and grandstanding, and then uh, she will uh, sit in the in the 
uh, in the witness chair starting, we expect October uh, 13th. And, you know, then there will be, you know, s- series of uh, other experts and, and witnesses and, and so on. And so, you know, just, you know, one, one note about this, this process. And I think one of the things that we're really hoping for out of this, I mean, one of the reasons why uh, Judge Barrett is, uh, is uh, you know, famous is a household name uh, is because of her first confirmation hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee when uh, Diane Feinstein's uh, uh, ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee famously attacked her faith and and said that uh, the quote dogma lives loudly uh, in her. And so, you know, I think we obviously spoke against that, frankly, unconstitutional and really shameful attack on Judge Barrett's faith then. And, and I think we really hope that that kind of thing is not going to happen. You know, you've, we've seen, you know, you've seen in some fringe places uh, on Twitter over the weekend and, and into the week, and I'm sure we'll, we'll continue to see this, you know, comments here and there. But our, our hope is a, you know, is a clean, fair hearing, a constitutional hearing, frankly, that's, you know, that's free of unconstitutional uh, you know, religious tests for office, which, you know, which is what, which is what Senator Feinstein's comments basically amounted to. And I think we, we have an explainer up on our site about religious uh, tests in office. And, and Dr. Moore wrote, you know, I, I think, a you know, a, a poignant reflection on this, on this as well, but that's, it's something that we'll be, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be watching for, you know, we're on the record about, and hopefully, we won't have to react to because it, it won't come to fruition. Right. All right. Well, we will we will be watching. Uh, again, links to our explainer, to our press release with Dr. Moore's quote, all of that is uh, available for you in the show notes. I want to remind you about our Courage and Civility Church Toolkit that we talked about on last week's episode. If you're like most pastors and church leaders, you're facing a lot of difficult questions this fall. Questions like, how can I advocate for important issues without hindering my gospel witness during an election year? And what responsibilities do we have to engage in this current cultural and political moment? See, as Christians, engaging the public square is important, but our current environment quite honestly, just makes this really difficult. That's why we're really excited here at the ERLC to introduce to you this new Courage and Civility Church Toolkit. The Courage and Civility Church Toolkit features sermon outlines and small group guides to help Christians engage in the public square in ways that fear God, honors our local authorities, loves all of our neighbors, and invites everyone to trust in Jesus. This toolkit will give pastors and church leaders a helpful path to walk with their congregations through the things that truly matter and shows them how to process this chaotic and polarized moment in American life. You can download your free copy today at erlc.com slash about slash church dash toolkit. That's erlc.com slash about slash church dash toolkit. Or if that was too much to type, which I don't blame you if it was, you can click the link in our show notes. It will always be there as long as we're talking about the Courage and Civility Church Toolkit. It's a great resource, and I'd highly encourage you to check it out. This week, Chelsea and I are really glad to be bringing you a conversation with uh, adoption advocate and friend of ours, founder of an adoption organization, and a former Capitol Hill staffer, our friend McLean Layton. McLean, thank you so much for joining Chelsea and I for this conversation on the Adoptee Citizenship Act. 
Well, thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm looking forward to talking to you about this. So, McLean, I'm I'm excited for you to join us because you not only had a hand in shaping adoption policy, but you yourself are an adoptive mom. And so uh, tell us a bit more about that and how you came to be an adoptive parent. Well, Jeff, it's an interesting story. Um, I think God placed adoption in my heart early, early in my life. I remember as a college student that I um, thought about it and decided that I wanted to adopt. I was at a college where the president's son was adopting. And I think that was part of what inspired me to think about adoption. And then also the um, while I was there, a family lost their father and mother in a plane crash. And there were four children and four siblings that needed to find a home. And it was discussed at our school. It was the, the president's daughter and son-in-law who were killed in the plane crash. And so um, there was a lot of talk about who was going to take care of these four children. And because wow. um, there was siblings and it was a handful. And <laughs> so <lot>. yes. <laughs> um, as it turned out, I believe the brother-in-law um, adopted all four of the children. But it, that even spurred me to want to adopt a sibling set. Wow. What a story. Yeah. So, so back in college days, many years ago, I decided I wanted to adopt him and a sibling set specifically. And then, you know, when I was dating my husband, we talked about children and how many we might want to have. And I asked him if he was open to adoption because I really was very, very interested in pursuing that option. And um, he was very willing. Of course, when you're dating, they say that you're <laughs> <laughs> the person you're dating will tell you anything, but he was true to his word in this case. <laughs> so, um, uh, those conversations are so important, but can be so yes. awkward and strained. <laughs> but good for you for having the conversation. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and I can add to that because after we were married many years, we were married about 10 years. And I wanted to wait to have children, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to adopt, because I wanted to have them later in life. I didn't want my biological clock precluding me from having a family, but I also didn't want to have a family right away after I got married. I wanted to spend time with my husband. And I was working on Capitol Hill for Senator Don Nichols from Oklahoma and doing his pro-life work, as well as um other issues, including immigration and energy and environment law, et cetera. And um, during my pro-life work, I met um, a lobbyist and we got in the discussion of, of um, adoption because she was talking about her brother who had blonde hair and she had black hair. And I said, how could you possibly have a brother who's blonde and you have black hair? And she told me that he had been adopted. I said, oh, well, you know, my husband and I want to adopt. And um Lo and behold, about, I don't know, a year later, she calls me on the phone and says, are you and your husband still interested in adopting? I said, yes, we are. And I'd been looking into it and I hadn't been looking in the right places. I'd been looking at domestic infant adoptions and that really wasn't my interest. My interest was a sibling set. And so she's called and said, a colleague of mine is adopting from Latvia and it's going through an agency in Georgia. And I thought of you and I wondered if you'd be interested. Wow. And yeah. And so she said she had five 
pictures of five eligible orphans in this orphanage. And this was back 20 something years. So I said, can you fax them over? (laughs) (laughs) So she faxed him over. And then when I got home that night from work, I, um, my husband came home. I said, you won't believe the call I got today. And um, I have pictures of five kids who need homes. They're not siblings, but they all need homes. And he said, well, let's just adopt all five of them. <laughs> that wow. was his immediate response. Wow. <laughs> that, that, that is amazing. And, and, and I just have to say, I, I think Chelsea and I have, have talked about often, as I think, I think many Christians have, is we see the way in which God brings people in and out of our lives at different, really unique, sometimes unexpected times. I mean, here you are, Capitol Hill staffer, talking to a lobbyist and then looking at pictures that that lobbyist sends you of these children. So thank you for sharing that. What what happened next? Well, um, none of those children ended up being the ones we adopted because one, they weren't siblings. And so we, she connected us to the adoption agency that was in Georgia. I mean, honestly, to be frank, I had never even heard of this country. And so I would restart it researching some countries. And and it turned out at that time, 20 plus years ago, I guess it was 25 years ago, um, there was not a long um, waiting period or a lot of visits that are, were required to this to the country. So I thought, great, we'll just apply for that country. And um, and so I we applied for a brother and sister. But we said we take any any siblings. And um, then. A few months later, I got a call and said, now, did you say you would take three? And I said, <laughs> I said, well, we only applied for two, but absolutely, we'll take three. I mean, I know sure. my husband was open to taking five. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had the ceiling of five as an yeah. option. <laughs> so I said, yes, we'll take three. And, um, and she said, well, we have your children for you, which oh I goodness. find to this day a very interesting choice of words because it wasn't we have three children siblings that you can take a look at or we have three children that just became available and wanted to know if you'd be interested. She mm-hmm. just simply said, we have your children for you. Wow. And I was just like, wow. Yeah. And um, yeah. she overnight expressed me um, pictures again, technology 25 years ago was a lot different. And so she overnight expressed me the pictures of these three beautiful children who are siblings. And um, as it turned out, we learned that one of the youngest, there were two, four and six at the time, um, two boys and a girl. And that we found out that the youngest was being getting ready to be transferred to another orphanage because he was considered very special needs. And um, they didn't think anyone would want to adopt the three of them together. So it was our privilege and honor and Mm. to be used of God to keep these children together. And um, during the adoption process is when I discovered, of course, okay, I'm working on Capitol Hill. I'm legislative counsel to a U.S. senator who happened to Which, be. That's, that's a big job in and of itself. And then add on adopting three children. Which, yeah, let's not just skirt that's over a lot. Yes, that is a, a lot. to a U.S. Yes. senator. Well, in fact, that is another um, pretty relevant God story, um, because as I was exploring this and. And before we had our children assigned to us, I remember being concerned about being a full-time working mom and um, believing that, you know, it's best if a mother can 
spend as much time at home with their children and raise them herself. And I was very conflicted because I thought, well, is it fair to bring a child into a household with full-time working parents? And I remember walking outside the office door and there's a church on the corner and there's a, it was late at night and there's this uh, spotlight on the steeple where there's a cross. And I walked out one night and I just looked up and this voice in my head said, McLean, these children have no mother. It doesn't matter if you're a working mother or and a working father. These children have, have no family. Yes. 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 And so eliminate that concern from your mind. And so um, that was very helpful to me in moving forward in the process. But I love um, that. So so you were sharing while you were ledge counsel to Senator Nichols, you discovered an issue. Can you share a little bit about what that that issue you bumped into um, is or was? Absolutely. I guess still is because we're still talking about it. <laughs> yes. So in the midst of all my paperwork that I was going through getting approved to adopt um, on the U.S. side of the things, I stumbled across the fact that my children were not going to be considered automatic U.S. citizens. And it was very troubling to me that they weren't going to be automatic U.S. citizens. I didn't understand that because my understanding as a lawyer of adoption law is that once you adopt a child, they are entitled to the full rights, responsibilities, and duties as a biological child, and they're to be treated as if they were naturally born to you. That's the words used in the case law. And I was like, well, wait a second. If I had given birth to these children in their country of origin, I would simply walk into the embassy with their birth certificate, my marriage certificate if I were married, and my proof of citizenship. And I would walk out with a consular report of birth for my child, which acts as their birth certificate for life, and an American passport so that they could enter the U.S. And instead of that process for my born-born adopted children, they were not being treated as if they were born to me. Instead, I had to go through an immigration process which entailed a lot more paperwork and a lot more time. I had to get a visa, an immigration visa. I had to get a bunch of things done that don't, I mean, for example, if I'd given birth overseas, I didn't, I wouldn't have to, my child would not have had to go through any type of medical exam. I would not have to approve my financial ability to take care of them. I would not have had to prove that I had health insurance. I mean, not that these are bad things to make sure of and ensure, but they're not, required if you give birth to a child overseas. And so the immigration process is very lengthy. I was very perturbed by the fact when I found out that they weren't going to be citizens, but I just had to put it aside as I was in the midst of this adoption process. And once I got the kids home and started back in the office after, you know, spending some maternity leave at home, I went to Senator Nichols and said, said that we need to fix this. We need to change this this isn't right that our adopted children are not treated instantly as children of American Equal, citizens. Exactly. So you got to work on a bill called the Child Citizenship Act, which essentially secured citizenship for, or automatic citizenship for adopted children. But there was a loophole. Can you share a little bit about that loophole and why we are still talking about this issue today? Absolutely. So we started working on legislation that ended up being called the Child Citizenship Act. 
started working on it in 1996. Can I insert a fun little story here too, real quick? So um, as way of background for our listeners, McLean and I have known each other for years and gotten to put our heads together on child welfare issues. And myself and my siblings are all adopted internationally. And I remember when this bill passed, I remember my parents talking about it and how it granted me automatic citizenship and my siblings. And so I I just want to say, I remember hearing my parents talk about this bill and it's such a cool, like how our paths cross and how now I get to know the person who was so instrumental in this. So anyway, I did not mean to derail, but just wanted to share that little, that little anecdote. And now, well, Chelsea, I, I love that you did because McLean, I'm sure for you having worked on this, that's probably not the first time you've heard somebody tell you, I remember how this affected me and my siblings and my family's life. And I I love that because so often we're interacting with people here in Washington, D.C. that are working on these big issues that we know theoretically, intellectually, that it's going to affect real people's lives. But this is a huge country with lots of families that have adopted lots of kiddos around the world over the last couple of decades. And so it's just, it's really neat when you actually get to meet somebody who was affected by a bill that that you worked on. Yeah. So just wanted to, to share, but um, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, so, Chelsea. I appreciate yes, that. Yes. Um, after the bill passed, I do remember whenever I saw an adopted child who was within a certain age range um, and was clearly foreign adopted that I remember thinking to myself, wow, this is really cool. They that God, yeah, yeah, they have citizenship and that God, I was able to be his hands and feet on this issue. So, so yeah. So in 1996, we started working on it and it took a, it did not pass until 2000. And that's because it takes a long time to pass a bill in Congress. And, um, yes. <laughs> and there was a lot of um, back and forth on the different provisions of the bill. In fact, an, another miracle that happened is that when the bill passed the Senate, it passed in, I think, late 1999. And um, it passed the Senate Judiciary Committee without a hearing which is unheard of. Unheard of. Unheard of. And it passed unanimously out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Of course, you know, many of us had met with all the staff involved and the senators involved in that committee. So it wasn't like they didn't know anything about it. They knew about the issue. And then I'm sitting in my office and the clerk from the Senate floor calls to let me know that the Senator Nichols bill is going to be taken up by voice vote, which means there's no debate. People are just going to vote yay or nay on it. And so it passed the Senate unanimously with a voice vote. Which is huge. (laughs) A very big deal. A very, very big deal. (laughs) It, It was just, I mean, I was, I didn't even know the Senate Judiciary Committee had passed it out. It just happened so quickly. Boom, boom, boom. And I happened to be pregnant with my second biological child at the time who was born in February of 2000. And that is when the House took up the bill and they made changes to the bill um, as from when it passed the Senate. But during all these changes in legislation and discussions and negotiations, it turned out that we needed to limit the um category of adoptees that were going to be impacted to those under the age of 18. 
So that was done as a because it was a it was required by different people, different members of Congress and different administration people who thought it was it was necessary. Yeah. So, McLean, for for those who aren't in D.C. or haven't worked on Capitol Hill, um, the way legislation passes is, number one, usually a very it takes a very long time, which you said. And number two, there are always compromises and changes along the way. A bill will pass one chamber of Congress and go to the other. They'll make changes. They'll come together. Both chambers will come together and discuss the bill. Um, oftentimes, different uh, agencies will will weigh in. So, McLean, can you share why this legislation was so significant? I would love to. So, passing legislation that has to do with immigration and citizenship is always very, very difficult and very um, controversial, usually. And so, it was a huge, huge deal to have uh, create a new class of citizens that received citizenship automatically. And um, it it wasn't even, I can't think of other groups at the moment that, that have had any bills passed in the, any recent history that gave automatic U.S. citizenship. And um, so these are children of American citizens who've been legally adopted and legally brought into this country. And people who were negotiating the legislation at the time felt like we need to make sure that it was children who were being addressed and that it wouldn't be confused with with um, adults coming into this country or people coming into this country through other means. And so they specifically wanted to limit it to um, 18 and under. And I think one of the things that some people didn't understand, particularly in the immigration community, is that we are not allowed to adopt children who are over the age, who are 16 and above, unless we're adopting a younger sibling and then we can adopt a 16 and 17 year old along with their younger sibling. But we can't go overseas and adopt an an adult or 18 year old. So that guideline already would weed out kind of some of those bad actors that they were, it sounds like, attempting to weed out with the age um, age limit, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So at the time, we didn't realize, we knew that the legislation was going to eliminate those who are over who are 18 and above but we did not know the ramifications of that we did we still to this day don't know how many people um, were left out or how many people fall into that group and again it was a requirement to get a bill passed and we were hoping to stop the bleeding so to speak to stop the by stop the bleeding I mean stop having cases where kids were adopted and didn't get their citizenship we wanted to not to be another paperwork chore for the adoptive family who's already been through months, if not years, of adoption paperwork. So we wanted it to to be simplify and to give the child protection. So we wanted to stop the bleeding and and thought we would go back and address any of the older adoptees who had not been naturalized by their parents later. But we had no idea of the extreme difficulty of doing that would be and how long it has taken us to try and fix this loophole in that original law. There is a population of legally adopted people who were older, 18 or older at the time when this bill took effect, who currently don't have U.S. citizenship. 
Um, so this group can't do things you and I can do, like apply for a passport. Um, some some folks can't, you know, get a, a driver's license or get financial aid or work at certain jobs or work at a government job because of that barrier of not having full citizenship. So um, McLean, you and I have worked for a long time on a bill called the Adoptee Citizenship Act. What does that bill do? That bill will close the loophole and allow adult adoptees who entered the country legally were adopted by an American citizen and who have lived here in the United States and been raised in America and who currently don't have citizenship, many who don't even know that they don't have citizenship, but it would allow them to prove those three points and receive automatic U.S. citizenship. So this bill is important um, not only because it grants citizenship that these impacted adoptees should have had all along, you know, the way we've talked about it and framed it is this is a family and a justice issue because these adoptees were brought here lawfully, legally, adopted by U.S. parents. Um, so they should have had this all along. So um, another important aspect of this conversation is honoring the, the countries where these children came from. Can you speak to that a little bit, McLean? Absolutely. You know, when we adopt a child or children from a foreign country, we that country is trusting us with their children. And they're trusting that we are going to treat them appropriately and with full citizenship and full rights within the U.S. And it's it's actually starting to cause um, some major problems in countries such as Korea and um, others who are looking at this situation and seeing that we have adopted um, children who are now adults and who are having issues with citizenship. I mean, that's our responsibility and our government's responsibility to make sure that these children that they have approved, they've approved the adoptive family, They've approved the child to enter our country. It's, you know, our country's responsibility to make sure that these adoptees have all the same rights and of any American citizen. Adoption is a privilege, not a right. And I think you're exactly right that we need to honor those sending countries. Um, another little personal anecdote story here. I used to work on Capitol Hill and did a lot on child welfare. And one of my last meetings on Capitol Hill was actually with the Korean government on this issue. And um, like you said, it's something they're very aware of and concerned about. And I think Congress should swiftly act to pass this bill to not only honor those sending countries um, because it is a privilege, but also honor um, the adoptive families and those those impacted adoptees. And Chelsea, I want to emphasize something that you said earlier and just um, make it clear because we kind of glossed over this. This is a huge, huge issue for um, those adult adoptees who don't have citizenship. I have had been contacted year after year after year by different attorneys and by different adult adoptees who um, who find out they don't have citizenship. And again, it impacts their ability to travel internationally. They can't get a passport. That's sometimes how they find out they're not a citizen. They go apply for a passport and they find out they're here on a green card and they're here legally, but they can't get a passport because they're not a citizen. Or they um, go back to school and want to apply for financial aid. They cannot get financial aid without 
um, proving their citizenship, at least not federal financial aid. Then the whole driver's license issue is huge in some states. You know, different states have different rules about that. But I mean, if you can't drive, you can't work. And I mean, I have had instances of people, uh, adult adoptees contacting me who served in the military before they required you to prove your citizenship. They served in the U.S. military and then they applied. In this one case, this man found out, found his biological father in England and was going to go over and visit him. And that's when he found out he wasn't a citizen. And then when he applied for his um, green card or his citizenship, they said because he had voted, he had committed a crime of moral turpitude, and which is a legal term. But nevertheless, he had to wait three years before he could apply again for citizenship. And I mean, it's just one issue after another. It's not something to be sneezed at or taken lightly. Citizenship is critical um, um, to have and to take full advantage of all that this country offers and all we guaranteed the sending country that we would offer these children when we brought them home to live with us. Well, McLean, I want to put a finer point on it there, tying that back to something you said at the beginning of this conversation, which is when a family adopts a child into their home, they are then responsible and 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 guaranteeing that child all the rights and privileges that come with being in that family. And citizenship is part of that. And so it really is a legal and a justice issue that Congress has the ability to make right, but it's also more fundamentally an issue about the integrity of the family as we've been talking about today. Um, it is, and it's I would say that the burden, though, in this case is on the government. Um, the family can't do anything about this other than making sure that, I mean, it's too late now for adult adoptees. They have to take the steps themselves to go get naturalized. But often families, adoptive families, didn't know that they had to take this added step. Um, they're much more educated now. Adoptive families are much more educated now. We obviously know about this issue and have known about it for 25 years plus. And so adoption agencies are informing families, but I mean, they either were, you know, just neglected to do it. They got busy parenting. They didn't know they had to do it. They didn't know the implications, but this is, can only be fixed through government action. And it's our government's responsibility to fix this issue. And they can do it through legislation. Absolutely. McLean, thank you so much for being an adoptive parent yourself, uh, for taking care and taking kids into your home. Thank you for your work back uh, on the on the original bill that we were talking about, and for your work now on the Adoptee Citizenship Act. I know, speaking for the whole the whole team at ERLC here, we are really grateful to partner with you in this. And thanks also for being so generous with your time here on Capital Conversation. We really appreciate it very much. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community who you think would enjoy Andrew's perspective on religious freedom, misconceptions, and the way forward. I personally really enjoyed Andrew's 
uh, recollection of the history of religious freedom, not only in our country, but throughout the, throughout the world. And I know that there are a couple of friends and family members of mine who also really appreciate that kind of in-depth historical perspective. And I look forward to sending them a link to this podcast. Uh, and I'd really enjoy it if you would consider doing the same. And be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there in your podcast player, leave us a rating and a review. This really does help others find our show. Resources from today's episode, as well as the Caringwell Hiring Guide and the Courage and Civility Church Toolkit are available in the show notes and at ERLC.com. Thanks so much for joining us today for Capital Conversations, and we look forward to being back together with you next week.